Well, good morning and thank you, Frank, for leading our service today. Please have your Bibles open from Matthew 17. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tony and I'll be opening today's passage for you today. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. So we sit here in the glory of these kids for this reason. In the name we pray. Amen. Amen. So before we dig into today's passage, I want to share something with you about my job. So part of my role in work is I have to shift the empty properties. Whenever I get a potential new tenant, I give them a call and tell them all about the property. I'll tell them how many bedrooms it's got, how big the living room is, what the kitchen looks like, I'll tell them if it's a front or rear facing property. I may even send them some nice pictures and a little layout of all the rooms with all the measurements. And if I'm feeling extra nice, and I've got to feel extra nice for this, I may even do a video of me awkwardly walking around the property, selling all the key features of the flat. How the shower was only fitted last week, how I've had the new carpet put in, or it might be the new paint job on the walls. The new tenant loves the flat. Two weeks later, they come along, they view, and they sign up for the new property. A few months later, I'm doing my exit survey. But why? Well, they say the property wasn't what they imagined. Deep down, I am screaming. I am thinking, I told you all the facts. And, yeah, I told, I told you all the facts. I told you everything about the flat. I gave you all the information. I told you exactly what it was like to live in one of these properties. How could you imagine it any different? But you see, those hypothetical tenants have taken the same information I have given them with all the facts and made their own versions of what it would be like to live in one of my properties. The truth is, we all take information and mould it to our own expectations. Have you ever done that with Jesus? I know I have. I've heard a sermon on who Jesus was, what he has done for me, and what he still does for me. I've gone, wow, that's nice. But then run away, taking the information, and try to make Jesus fit around my version of life, of what a saviour should look like. As we delve into the passage, I would like to be thinking, is your version of Jesus truly the Jesus of the Bible? Does your image of who Jesus is, what he does, and how we should respond to him match the, what the word of God says about him? And when our Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible, what does it mean for us? To find that out, we need to delve into the passage with an open heart and ask, who's the passage of saving Lord is? How should we respond to him? And what kind of saviour will he be? Are we getting Jesus right? So, who is Jesus? Well, that's a question even the disciples didn't get. If we look at the previous chapter, starting from verse 13, Jesus asked, who do the people say? The disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, and others one of the prophets. When Jesus asks, but who do you say I am? Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We think, wow, Peter gets it. 
He knows who Jesus is, yet, in a few in a few short verses, when Jesus predicts his death, he says, Never, Lord, shall this happen to you. Now, it's easy this side of the cross to look at Peter and wonder, how does he not get this? He was so close, and now he just doesn't see see when it was so obvious. How is he not getting Jesus right? But remember, these were Jewish people with Jewish ideas of what Messiah should look like. They were expecting a king who was going to come with chariots of fire, free them from the Romans, and lead them all to victory. They were not expecting a Messiah who would come to die a criminal's death. To them, death led to defeat. It's easy to criticise Peter for not getting it, but maybe there's times that there's a bit of Peter in all of us. When we pray, Lord, make things better. To just, to just make that person or situation go away. And when it doesn't happen, we sit and we think, why, Lord, are you not the Messiah who strikes down my enemies? If we're looking for that kind of Messiah, I'm sorry, but we'll miss Jesus. And so we find ourselves on a dark mountaintop with a unique insight to who the Lord is. So we're starting at verse 1. After six days, this being six days after Jesus had predicted his death, Jesus took Peter, James and John, led them up a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before him. Before him. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. And just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking to him. Now these few verses could be lost on us. We may read them and go, Wow, this shows Jesus is heavenly and holy. And we wouldn't be wrong for getting an earthly glimpse into the kingdom with everything installed. But the three disciples who knew their Old Testament better than I ever could, this would have brought them to the core. They may well have been thinking, here we have a Mo here we have a Moses who went up a mountain in Exodus 34 and after six days had an audience with the Lord, who came down from the mountain transfigured with a face shining like the sun, a massive behemoth of the Old Testament, who lived a life pointing to Jesus, standing with Elijah, the other behemoth of the Old Testament, who in Malachi chapter 4, the Lord said, See, I will send you a prophet. Sorry, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day in the world. These two in conversation with Jesus, and Jesus standing there with these in the side. These two guys were only ever the supporting act for the headline, the undercard meant to prepare the way for the main event. And they may have been thinking then, Jesus must truly be the main event, and if Jesus is the main event, then everything, is, then everything he said must be true. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that must be true. When he said he's going to die and on the third day rise again, well, that must also be true. And I think Peter got it when, when he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I could put up three shelters. In some of the other versions of the story, it says he asked this in fear, or because he didn't have anything else to say. I like to think it was Peter's way of saying, Lord, we get it and we want to share it. Do we 
again. The Lord is not a better version of ourselves, who has come to make our life easy, so we can be freed from the horrible bosses or the kid who's picking on us in the school ground. But he is the Lord who has prophesied, who came to be born in Bethlehem to the Virgin, to die on an instrument of torture as a ransom for our sins, so we may be forgiven. He came not to save us from worldly foes, but from the grips of sin and death. If that realisation is not enough to get us all into our knees, I don't know what is. But I jump ahead of it in the story. So what happens next? When the disciples are getting their head around the fact that Jesus is glowing, standing with Moses and Elijah, trying to put all the pieces together of what this means, they hear the voice of God coming down from heaven, echoing the words from his baptism. This is my son, with whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Can we just slow down for a minute? And sit in that. I thought we people who need to hear that let it sink in. This is my son with whom I love. The father loves the son. I wonder how does that make you feel? We have a saviour who is loved by his father. The one true living God loves his one and only son. Well, what does that mean to me and you? Well, let's read down from verse 6. When the disciples heard us, they fell down to the ground, terrified. The disciples had never had an encounter with the living God and they terrified them. Suddenly they realised who Jesus is. Fully man, yet fully God. And this shook them to the core. And they fell to the rightful and deserved place. Face down, not worthy to look at the face of God. But did the Lord leave them there? For that is what their sins say they deserve. No. He came and touched them and invited them to stand. So last week I was forced to think about the statement All sinners go to hell. And I was struck with fear. After, after all, it is true that all sin, sinners who are straight from God. So that we are all sinners who are straight from God. And our deserved place is in hell. And then I thought, maybe the statement should be, all sinners go to hell, but some make it to heaven. For I am a sinner, and I know Jesus, what he has done for us, so that our sins may be forgiven. Jesus has come into my life and touched me, and it's only by his grace that I have been saved. And then I was racked with guilt, thinking, thinking my, because of my sin, the Lord had to go to a cross. I was ready to bow down in a heap and be struck down. Now I don't know what you're going through, but maybe that's where some of you are right now. Racked with fear. Maybe fear of disappointing the Lord. Fear that you're not good enough for him. Or maybe it's fear of your sins being laid bare in front of the Lord. May I tell you that you're amongst friends today? If you let that passage sink in, it changes everything. Jesus tells us not to be afraid. Jesus telling us not to be afraid and stand with him is an echo of the cross. Jesus came 
just that sinners like me and you can be forgiven of our sin and we can stand with him in glory. And if God loves the Son, and Jesus tells us in John's Gospel the only way to the Father is through him, then that means if God loves the Son and the Son lives in us, then we are loved. Let me just say that one more time. If God loves the Son and the Son lives in us, we have a Father who loves us. Not because of what we have done, but despite it, but despite what we have done. When, when we get Jesus right, we are loved by our Father. And lastly, we, lastly we come to what we can expect from Jesus. As he was coming down from the mountains, the disciples were confused. They got who Jesus was, they had witnessed his awesome power, and they had seen his grace, but it didn't fit with their narrative. The idea of how things were meant to happen. As they came down with their Old Testament head on, they were still confused, thinking, we've seen the Lord, and felt his wonder and grace, but there was something missing from how things were meant to happen. Asking, why then do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? The Lord replies, to be sure, Elijah comes first. But I tell you, Elijah has come. Elijah had came and they had missed him. But Jesus continues, they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of the disciples. And, and then the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. I wonder, did the disciples understand? They got, a, they got a bit about John, but did they get a bit about the Son of Man? It's almost a blink in your missing moment. Jesus is saying to the disciples here, yes, you're right. Elijah has come. He was in the form of John the Baptist, but the world missed him. The Elijah who was, who, was, who was designed to pave the way for him to be his supporting act was missed, and the world rejected him. And as it was for as it was for him, the Son of Man will also suffer. If you look down a few verses, you will see the title: Jesus predicts his death for the second time. But I think this is the second time he's pointing to the cross. All, all the way through this passage, he's pointing to the cross. Six days ago, he told them he was going to die, but they doubted him. And now, even after this mountaintop experience, he's saying it's all true, all paths lead to me, all paths lead to the cross. The only way to understand me is to understand the cross. To miss the cross is to miss all of who Jesus is. If you're standing here thinking, this Jesus sounds good, but I still don't get it. It's most probably my first sermon being awful, and I just haven't got my point across. But if it's not, can I say you're in good company? In the next few weeks, we will see, even after this mountaintop experience, the disciples didn't get it. We will see in a few weeks how they argue about who's the greatest of all of them, as if that's important. They still didn't get Jesus right. This journey is a lifelong journey where we're always learning and we won't fully get it until we meet him in paradise. 
I want to leave you with this. One line, I love one of the lines from the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Where Susan asks her partner, is he safe? Beaver replies, safe. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. Of course, Aslan was a fictional character in a novel, although some will argue that Aslan is based on Jesus. But he's not Jesus. But I have echoed those words so many times, and one way or another, when people ask me, Who is Jesus? Is following him safe? Or if I follow Jesus, will my life be easier and safer? My reply may be something along the lines of, Who said anything about safe? We have a God who could bring judgment on us at any moment. And we would deserve it. But, but he is good. He sends his son to die on a cross so that our sins can be forgiven. And any who believe in him may have eternal life. So, of course, he's not safe. He's the Lion of Judah. But he is. But he is wonderful. He died, on, he died so we can have what we don't deserve. Only by his grace are we saved. Who is Jesus? He is our Saviour, Son of God. <coughs> he was, who came to die as a ransom for many. How should we respond? In fear and in wonder. And what should we expect? A cross-shaped life? Where the Father loves the Son, and the Son lives in us then we are loved. But when we get things right, so when we get Jesus right, things don't magically change, but we are able to take up our cross and follow him, knowing that although the path, the path is hard, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Our, salva our salvation has been brought with the blood of Christ. By his grace, we are saved. I'll say it one last time. God loves the Son. We. So if God loves the Son and the Son lives in us, then we are loved. In a few moments we're going to stand and sing as I survey the wondrous cross. Maybe as we do, we could be reflecting, reflecting and praying quietly on all the Lord has done for us so that, so that we have a God who loves us and be asking yourself, Yes, yourself, have you got Jesus right? If you're new here today, or maybe you're just exploring who Jesus is, please come and talk to one of the elders, Nathan and Andy, where I'm sure we will be happy to talk to you more about how we get Jesus right. But first, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that, that you're a Father who loves the Son. And when we have your Son living in us, Lord, that we are we are people who, is, who are loved. We pray forgiveness for the times that we take that for granted, Lord, and we live life our own way or create our own version of, of what our Saviour should be. We thank you, Lord, that you do not give us what we deserve, that you show us your grace and invite us to stand. In your name I pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing as I survey. <laughs>